It's a, a privilege to be able to share the Word of God with you this morning. Uh, you know what today is, of course, it's the first Sunday after Easter. And on that very first Sunday after Easter, there was a famous incident that took place. Uh, you'll remember that. That was the encounter that Jesus had with the disciple Thomas. Thomas, of course, had doubted the, the accounts of the resurrection. On that very first Easter Sunday, Jesus had appeared to his disciples. Uh, Thomas wasn't with them. And they had told him afterwards, he's alive. We've seen him. And uh, Thomas would not believe. He said, I will not believe. Now, faith is a, a matter of the will. He said, I will not believe. And God calls every man, woman, and child to believe. But many will not. Now, of course, we know the will of man is in the hands of God. He turns the will in His grace. He makes the unwilling will willing, as was once famously said. Thomas said, I will not believe. Unless I put my finger in the marks, unless I put my hand in His side, I will not and isn't the Lord so gracious that on that first Sunday after Easter that we celebrate today, Jesus once again appeared to the disciples as they met together. And he looked at Thomas without anger, without judgment or condemnation, but with a fatherly rebuke. He said, Thomas, come here. Put your fingers in, in the marks, put your hand on the side. He said, Thomas, don't be unbelieving, but believe. It's that what, that we remember today. And then Jesus made this famous statement, which I want us to think about this morning. He said, Thomas, because you have seen, you believe. You see, Thomas had fallen on his knees as Jesus had appeared to him. He now didn't need to put his finger in the, the holes and he didn't need to put his hand in the side. All his pride was gone. He had been humbled by the presence of Jesus and the grace which Jesus dealt with him with. And he fell to his knees and he actually was the first man to call Jesus God. He said, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus said this, Thomas, because you've seen me, you believe. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I want to ask the question this morning, why is it that those who have not seen, as none of us in this room have seen, I'm willing to bet there's no one in this room that has had a physical manifestation of Jesus Christ. We've not seen Him and yet many, most of you here believe. That he is risen from the dead. And Jesus' testimony to you this morning is that you are blessed because you believe. And I want to ask the question, why? What does that mean? And we're going to turn to the book of Romans and we're going to ask the Apostle Paul to answer that question for us. Why is it that those who believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ are blessed? And we're going to turn to Romans chapter 4. And I'm particularly going to look at verse 25 of Romans chapter 4 this morning. 
And as you make your way there in your Bible, I'd like to just open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning with hearts open wide to the truth of your word. Lord, we pray, O God, for the moving of the Holy Spirit, Lord, here amongst us. Lord, that you said, wherever you are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of you. Oh, come and be in the midst of us this morning, Lord Jesus, and illuminate us by the work of your Spirit as we open your word, Lord. We know that we can make no progress in the Bible unless you come and open our hearts in your grace. We pray for that gracious work this morning, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So, as we move our way up to Romans chapter 4, I just want to give you a, a sense of the Apostle's Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul's argument as he works his way up to where we're going to be. Uh, the, 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 the letter to the Romans is, according to Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who's one of the great English poets, started the Romantic movement in, in, the, in England. He said this, the, Paul's letter to the Romans is the profoundest piece of writing in existence. Quite something from the man who wrote The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, if you've read that poem. Quite something for him to say that. Many other men have praised the book of Romans as the greatest of all writing. And there is an incredible train of thought that the Apostle Paul, by the Spirit of God, as he follows from the first chapter to the last in the book of Romans. Some of the epistles are not like that. You read Paul's letter to the Corinthians and it's not a unified train of thought. He's just answering questions that they've asked him and he's jumping from topic to topic. Not so in the epistle to the Romans. There is a train of thought, a holy logic, which you can follow from the very first verse. And Paul has begun uh, with... Uh, some greetings and uh, some thanksgiving for their faith that has gone out. Uh, he then expresses some travel plans. The reason Paul was writing to the Romans because he was planning to go to Rome. He had never been to Rome before. A church had been planted by others. But he had all these many years long to go to this church in Rome and to go and preach the gospel to them as well. And now, after these many years, it seemed like he was going to get his chance to go to the church in Rome. And he wanted to introduce himself as an apostle to them. He wanted to introduce his gospel, as he calls it, my gospel, to them. Before or in advance of his trip, so that they would be ready to receive him. This is why he writes to the Romans. And in the first chapter, after his introductions, in verses 16 and 17 of Romans chapter 1, he then lays out the theme of the entire letter. Everything that follows these verses, 16 and 17 of chapter 1, will simply unpack the truth that he lays out in these two glorious verses. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, the Gentile world. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now this is going to become a major theme in Paul's opening chapters as we move up into the 3rd, 4th, 5th and 6th chapters. The righteousness of God. And in the sense in which he's speaking, this is not 
The righteousness of God by which God is righteous in his own being. This is not the attribute of God that he's speaking about, although God is righteous in his being. This is different. This is a gift of righteousness which can be given by God to sinful men and women. The gift of God's righteousness. And this is the theme he's now going to pick up as the chapter unfolds. In the gospel, this righteousness of God, which every human being will have to have on the day of judgment, if we are to stand on that day, we will need to stand in the full righteousness of God, in our own selves, if we're to stand on that day. He says that this righteousness is revealed in the gospel. And it is revealed from faith, The very act of receiving Christ as you're justified is an act of faith. And then the rest of the Christian life is walked out by faith. He says it's from faith to faith, just as it is written. And then he quotes from the book of Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. Then for the following verses from chapter 1 verse 18 all the way through to... uh, Kind of midway through chapter 3, Paul is then speaking about the need of all men and women for this gift of righteousness. And he begins to show how every man, woman, children included in that phrase, every man is sinful in the eyes of God. And he shows how it is not just the Jews who are sinful, those who had been given the law of God but had not obeyed it. That none of them had obeyed it. That in fact he says the law was never given to man. In order to give us a rule book by which to earn our salvation by being good people. You can never get into heaven by that kind of good works. He says that the law was actually given so that sin might be made known in all its sinfulness. That it might be a mirror in which men could look to see their unrighteousness in the sight of a holy God. That's what the law does. It convicts us of sin. And he says that it's not only the Jew who has that law written, but he said even the Gentiles who do not have the written code of the law, when they do what is right, they show the work of the law written on their hearts. That you have a conscience. I have a conscience. And when we do what our conscience tells us, our conscience excuses us. But when we do what our conscience tells us not to do, which we do daily, We are accused by the law of God written on our hearts. He says there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it's as if Paul takes those first three, three and a half chapters to take the reader down, down, down into the depths of hell and convict them of sin. I mean, the first three chapters of Romans are some heavy reading. It's not pleasant to read. Because he takes us down and he makes us see our deserving of hell. He makes us see our sinful, wretched nature in the eyes of God. Do you know that all men want to justify themselves? It's been spoken of this morning. The pride of man damns him. Because we want to justify ourselves. I'm not so bad. I've never done anything that's really bad. I've never hurt anyone. I've never stolen. The self-justification of man is endemic. 
And so Paul takes these three chapters to show us that none is righteous, no, not one. They have all turned aside, they have all followed their own way. And then he, he lists various sins and vices that as you read through them, you become convinced, maybe I am a sinner, maybe I'm in need of this righteousness of God which is revealed in the gospel. And then he comes to the climax of this great taking us down, down, down into hell. He comes to the climax of it in verse 20 of of chapter 3 where he says, Therefore, after all I've said, therefore by the deeds of the law, by the works of the law, by being a good person, trying to live a good life, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And he takes us right down with that statement. And he rips away all self-righteousness from man. And as we are now in despair in our righteousness that we do not have the righteousness of God that he's speaking about. It's then in verse 21 that he turns the glorious corner in the book of Romans. And he now begins to take us up again. Do you know that... There is no possibility of salvation. There is no possibility of entering the kingdom of heaven unless you have first been taken down, down, down by the gospel and shown your sinfulness and your need of forgiveness. Much of the problem in the church today is that there is not enough preaching on sin. Not enough preaching on the depravity of man, on the, on the rebellious heart of unsaved man, on our enmity with God and His anger, His holy, righteous anger against sin. And so Paul makes that clear, but then he says in verse 21, But now, and now as he turns the corner back up to take us back up to heaven, It's like the doorway of heaven creaks open and and a shaft of, of saving light shines upon the reader. As Paul says, but now the righteousness of God. And if you've become convinced that you are a sinner, you will thirst and hunger for this righteousness of God. Oh, give me that righteousness. That I might stand in the presence of a holy God. He says this righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the Old Testament spoke about this righteousness that can be given to you as a gift. Apart from the works of the law. It got nothing to do with what you do. What you've done in your life. No matter how good. No matter how bad. It's irrelevant what you have done. This is a righteousness apart from anything you've done that can be given to you. He says this is now revealed. Even the righteousness of God which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. The wonderful turning point in the gospel as Paul unfolds it in Romans. He then takes Abraham as an example of this kind of righteousness. A man who himself, uh, uh, Paul actually calls Abraham an ungodly man. 
It's, it's, it's God who justifies the ungodly in the, in the context of speaking about Abraham. And yet, Abraham, as an ungodly man, received this gift of righteousness that God gives, by which people will be able to stand clean on the day of judgment without fear. He says, let's take an example from the Old Testament. Let's take the, the life of Abraham. And he says, let's look at Abraham's life. Abraham was justified by faith. He was an ungodly man, and yet when he believed the promise of God, I am going to give you a child, and through your seed, echoes of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the seed of the woman, echoes of the promise of this coming Savior, through your seed, your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And I believe Abraham joined the dots and he knew when God made him that promise, the promise was that the seed of the woman, the coming savior of the world, who would crush the serpent's head, would come through his descendants. The promise of the gospel, in fact Paul says in Galatians, the gospel was preached to Abraham. And he believed it. And as Abraham believed, Paul has now reminded us that God credited it to him or imputed righteousness to him or accounted it to him as righteousness. Just because he believed. He had faith in the promise. He said, yes, Lord, I believe. And he was made righteous in the sight of God. Salvation by faith alone. And having taken Abraham as his example, we now reach this point in the epistle that I want to get to, we'll, we'll start in verse 21 of chapter 4. He says, Abraham was fully convinced that what God had promised, the seed who would bring the gospel, God was also able to perform, he believed. And therefore, and then he quotes from Genesis chapter 15, it was accounted to him, or credited to his account as righteousness. Now it was not written for his sakes alone that righteousness was imputed to him. Paul makes a wonderful statement here. He says this was not some singular event of history. This was not some anomaly, some strange event that doesn't have application to our lives today. This was not some strange way that God dealt with one man, but it doesn't mean that he's going to deal with everyone else in the same way. No, Paul says the opposite. He says, this was not written for Abraham's sake alone, but it will also be imputed or credited to us who believe, just like it was to Abraham. To us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. And then here's the verse I want us to camp in this morning. He says this Jesus who was delivered up to the cross, to death. He was delivered up because of our offenses. And raised because of our justification. Let that settle into your mind and in your heart this morning. Jesus was delivered up because of our offenses, because of our sins. But he was raised on the third day because of our justification. Now I want to ask the question this morning, what that means. Because this 
is the answer to our, our initial question this morning. What does it mean that we are blessed if we believe in the resurrection? These are the primary blessings of the faith that we have in the resurrection. Here they are. And there's three of them that I want to pull out from this verse. I'm going to tell you what they are in advance and then I'm going to take each of them individually. Number one, the first blessing of faith in the resurrection is this. That you're blessed if you believe it because it's true. Tony was reminding us of of that this morning. I wish I could stand here and say that that all human human beings want to believe the truth. That we don't want to be deceived or be in the dark. I wish I could say that to you. That's not the testimony of the Bible about fallen man, unfortunately. The Bible, in fact, says the opposite. That until our hearts have been changed by the Spirit of God in regeneration... Until we are born again. The heart of man in fact runs from the truth. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because we don't want to face the truth. Jesus said, this is the condemnation. That light has come into the world. But men love darkness rather than light. Because their deeds are evil. But whoever comes to the light, Jesus said. It is seen that his deeds have been done in God. So where are you this morning? Are you you running away from the light? The light of God as it searches your conscience about your sin? Do 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 you suppress the voice of the Spirit as He convicts you of sin? Or are you, as I trust you are, those who continually come to the light? You keep a clean slate with God, a clear conscience, continually making peace with God in repentance, but believing that your righteousness is in heaven. Amen. Hallelujah. It's true. I think in our sober moments, as the Lord gives us grace, we do realize that it's better to live our lives according to the truth than according to a lie. It's, it's better. If, if I'm driving my car and I'm following a GPS, which I have to do when I'm in Robertson because I get lost every five minutes. But if, if, if I'm following a GPS that has been corrupted by some virus and it's sending me to the wrong place, I might, you know, enjoy the drive for so long. But in the end, I'm going to realize at some point I have to find the truth. Because this is never going to take me where I want to go. It's better to know the truth, even if the truth is hard. Well, the truth is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He's alive. He is alive. The the, the eyewitness accounts, Tony was talking about the the eyewitness accounts this morning. Those, Those accounts, they attest to several facts that... That are unquestioned historical facts. Number one, Jesus Christ was dead. He was dead on that cross. Everyone has agreed that he was dead. The Romans are agreed, the Jews were agreed, and the Christians were all agreed he was dead. And his body was put in that tomb dead. The second thing they attest to is that the hopes of the disciples had been crushed. They weren't excited about the death of Jesus. They didn't think this was some great victory. 
They were downcast. They were depressed. All hope was lost. They were expecting a, a, a revival of David's kingdom, which had been a thousand years before that, that this was the Davidic Messiah, the son of David, who would come and sit on David's throne and he would crush the Romans and that they would sit in the parliament of this new earthly kingdom and Jesus would be king and they would have great positions of power. They're always arguing amongst themselves. Who's the greatest? And then he goes to the cross and he, he dies. What, what's that all about? Where's this glory? Where's this kingdom? Where's this victory? What's it all about? Their hopes were smashed. You cannot explain the existence of the Christian church by the response of the disciples to the death of Jesus because they had no hope in his death. The third thing that the eyewitness accounts attest to is that that tomb was empty on the third day. I'm tempted to get a little excited when I say that because everyone agrees that tomb was empty. The Romans agree it was empty. The Jews agree it was empty. They, In fact, they paid the soldiers to go and tell a lie that someone came and stole his body at night just to pay them off. They didn't know what to do with the fact that the tomb was empty. And no one could produce the body. The Romans couldn't produce it. The Jews couldn't produce it. Both of them hate, hated Jesus, they hated Christians, they hated Christianity as it began to spread. The easiest thing would have been just produce the body. But no one ever could. He was gone. You know why? Because he was alive. The fourth thing that the eyewitness accounts attest to is this. Something happened on that third day that turned those men who did not believe, whose hopes were crushed. That even though Jesus had been warning them, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of the Gentiles, I'll be mocked, I'll be scorched, I'll be spat upon. They're going to kill me, but on the third day I will rise again. He predicted it. They never believed it, but on that third day something happened that entirely transformed those 11 men. Tony spoke about it this morning. Many of them went to their graves preaching the resurrection. Thomas himself, the doubter, was run through with a lance in India preaching the resurrection. That he had seen Jesus alive. This is the first of the blessings of faith in the resurrection that Paul alludes to. It's so obvious, in fact, it's, it's so assumed in the text, in this verse 25, that you can almost miss the point. Paul says, he was delivered up and he was raised. These are historical facts. The life and death and resurrection of Jesus are not some parable. They're not some figment of someone's imagination. They're not a myth to try to embody a, a, a a surviving of, of the teachings of Jesus. You know, the, the most famous New Testament scholar of the 20th century, Rudolf Bultmann, the most famous academic in New Testament studies in the 20th century, denied the historicity of the resurrection. That is how liberal the church had become in the 20th century, and many churches today are still going down that route, trying to question what is true and what is not true in this Bible. No, these are historical facts. You can plot the resurrection of Jesus on the date line of human history. 1,985 years ago, he rose from the dead and he is alive today. 
Hallelujah. That is great news. And if you believe it, you're blessed because it's true. Secondly, Paul doesn't just stop at making an historical statement. He was delivered up. He was raised. He he goes further than that to explain the meaning. He attaches doctrine to history. These were not meaningless events. He gives the meaning of these events. He says he was delivered up. Why? Because of our offenses. Why are you blessed if you believe in the resurrection? Because if you believe in the resurrection, it also assumes you believe in his substitutionary, vicarious is the word we use, his substitutionary death on the cross for sin. His death was not meaningless. There's a famous line in uh, Shakespeare's play Macbeth, where Macbeth himself says this, Life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Is that true? That life is just full of activity and sound and fury and passion, but means nothing. That life is meaningless. That death is meaningless. Is it true? Well, the scriptures say otherwise. And here Paul addresses the fact of the death of Jesus. It was not a meaningless death. There was eternal purpose and reason behind the death of Jesus. It meant something. Here's what it meant. He was dying for the sins of the world. When I was a, uh, a young man, I grew up in an Anglican church and I kind of had a sense of, of God, although I never grew up in a, a Christian home. I used to take myself down to church and I thank God that somehow in my early years he, 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 he deposited just a simple faith that it's true, the Bible is true, Jesus is alive, He is Lord, He did die, He did rise again. And yet, I was never discipled, I never had the gospel explained to me in its simplicity and purity. And so I had all these mixed up ideas of how to be okay with God and how I could face death with confidence. And I used to think that I could beat the odds of Judgment Day. I used to have this sense of almost like a pair of scales that I used to live with. And if I did something good or noble or kind or I was obedient to my parents, whatever it was, then I, the, the scales would tip in, in my favor of good works. But then if I went and, and got drunk as I did many times as a teenager and kind of lost my way and, and then did all sorts of bad, evil things, and then my conscience would condemn me and I would think, oh, I'm in trouble, I'm in desperate trouble if I die, I'm in tr- I need to stop doing a few of these bad things and clean up my life and, and do a few good things and maybe go to church again, which I hadn't done for a long time, and then the, the scales would tip again and I was constantly living with this, this in and out of heaven, in, in and out and in and out, based on how I was doing with my life, the kind of life I was living. But we remember the words of the Apostle Paul, by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. What a meaningless, what, a, what a, um, a futile game I was playing to think I could beat the odds of judgment. You can't beat the odds. I want to read to you from Martin Luther's introduction to, he wrote a preface to, to the commentary that he wrote on Romans. And in fact, the preface is more famous than the commentary. 
And I want to read to you what he says about the judgment of God. About the standard of God that he will have on that day. Luther says this. God judges according to what is at the bottom of the heart. And for this reason, his law makes its demands on the inmost heart and cannot be satisfied with works. But rather, it punishes as hypocrisy and lies works that are done in any other way than from the bottom of the heart. For this reason, all men are called liars in Psalm 116, for the reason that no one keeps or can keep God's law from the bottom of the heart. For everyone finds in himself displeasure in what is good. Until your heart has been changed by the Spirit, until you have been born again, your heart delights in evil and it does what is good begrudgingly. You may do what's good, you may live an outwardly pleasing life, but you do it for reputation's sake and to avoid punishment, to avoid pain. But your heart doesn't delight in the good. That's what he's saying. You have to do it from the bottom of the heart. And this is foreign to our experience as humans. He says, not only must you do the good, but he says, everyone finds in himself pleasure in what is bad. We delight in sin. We delight in in sexual temptation and immorality. We delight in it. Our flesh delights in it. It is a sign of our fallenness, of our sinfulness in the sight of God. He says, if then there is no willing pleasure in the good, then the inmost heart is not set on the law of God. Then there is surely sin and God's wrath is deserved, even though outwardly there may seem to be many good works in an honorable life. And this kind of deep perfection that the law of God demands at one point in my life my early 20s it it ripped the self-righteousness away from me and I began to see I have no hope this scale game is a joke if there's even one sin in in, in the scale it's, it's too late already I have to be perfect and I'm not perfect what can I do I needed forgiveness. So Jesus was delivered up because of our offenses. You know the doctrine of the atonement. Jesus did not die for his own sins. The punishment that I deserved because of the life that I have lived. He took that punishment for me when he went up Calvary's hill. And he hung on that cross. And he bled and died and suffered for me. For me. Why would he do that for me? He's a great savior. He took my punishment for me. This is what Paul says. He says he was delivered up. Because of our offenses. He was there dying. For us. And then finally this. This third blessing of believing. So the first blessing is it's true. You're walking in the light if you believe in the resurrection. The second blessing is if you believe in the resurrection, you are forgiven of your sin. It gives forgiveness because he died for sin. 
And thirdly, it is a blessed thing to believe in the resurrection because our resurrection is inseparable from our justification. It means you're justified in the sight of God if you believe in the resurrection. And that's the point he now makes. He says that Jesus was raised because of our justification. If you're ever going to understand Easter and the power and importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have to understand what this biblical word justification means. Because our resurrection is inseparably tied. His resurrection is inseparably tied to our justification. What does it mean? Justification is a legal term. It's a term of law. You know, Jesus said there's coming a great day of judgment. He said, uh, this is Paul actually speaking in 2 Corinthians. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body. Do you want to receive from God what you've done in your body? I know I don't. He says, we must all stand before God. We have to give an account according to what we've done, whether good or bad. That's why it's such good news that he took all my bad up that hill and died for me. So that I don't have to stand there that day with all that bad and give an account of it. It's coming a great day of judgment. In a, in a court of law, when a judge has heard all the facts, he studied the matter, he knows the case from beginning to end, he's ready to make his decision. That little hammer called a gavel, that gavel falls and he... He declares his judgment. And if he says, I have studied the facts of your life and I find you innocent. And the gavel falls. That is justification. That's what the word means. To be justified is to be declared innocent by a judge. The opposite, of course, I've studied the facts of your life. I find you guilty. The gavel falls. That is condemnation. The Bible says that all the world stands condemned before God. And yet, there is a righteousness that can be given through faith. That can lead to our justification. If this is all true, what I've said to you this morning. If God is a righteous God, that He's going to judge all men and women for their sin. If you will stand before Him on that great day and give an account of your life. If that is true... Surely the most important question any human being can ever ask is how is it that I can stand before God on judgment day? How, how is it that I can stand justified? And, and as that gavel falls, as he's, as he's opened my very heart and every deed that I've ever done and still be found innocent and declared justified. How can it be? And this is what Paul says. He says, basically there's two ways. If, if you want to be justified on that day of judgment, there's two options. Number one, live a perfectly sinless life. And then you'll live. Do this and you will live, said Jesus. But which of you can say that you've done that? If you're anything like me, you know... That what Paul has said, that by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. If you know that's true about yourself, then that only leaves one option. And that is for God to count you as righteous, though you are not. 
But how can that be? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? If he's a just judge, how can he see all my sin and still declare innocent justice? How can it be? That's not justice. And this is why Romans chapter 3 verse 21, that great turning point in the gospel is such good news. Because Paul says now there is a righteousness from God apart from the works of the law. That has nothing to do with your sin. In fact, it's got nothing to do with the good things you've done. None of it will be taken into account on the day of judgment. None of it. The righteousness of God which comes to us through Jesus Christ... He lived a perfectly sinless life for 33 years. He never broke the law. He did what we have not done. And His righteousness is given to us as a gift. It's credited to our account. It's like someone depositing money into your bank account for a debt that you cannot pay. And then the money immediately gets transferred out to settle your debt. And you just look at your bank statement and you see it's been done. You're free. It's got nothing to do with your work or how much you earn the money or whether you did it or didn't. It's been a gift. This is what righteousness is. It's a gift. And it's given to those who believe. What an incredible message. What an amazingly good message. This is why it's called the gospel. The good news. And I don't know about you, but I think it's worth getting excited about. It's incredible news. That you can stand before God on the day of judgment and when he looks at you, there has been this, as John Calvin called it, this great exchange. The righteousness of Jesus Christ credited your account. When he sees you, he finds you innocent. So that when that gavel falls, it's not unjust, it is justice being done. You know why? Because justice was served on the head of Jesus when he died on the cross. Justice has been served. And Paul says, because our justification has been earned in the grave of Jesus Christ. There's this causal relationship. He says, because of our justification, Christ was raised. You want to know, is it, is it this simple to be saved, to be clean in the sight of... Is it this simple... Is it just a gift that God gives those who believe? If you want to be assured of your justification aside of God, look at that empty tomb. This is the point that Paul is making. He was raised because of. The Greek word there is a causal dia. It means because of our justification. Something had been fully and finally accomplished in the grave and on that cross. It was done. You know that the last words of Jesus Christ on the cross as He gave up the Spirit were this. It is finished. You know, this message has application both to unbelievers and to believers. There may be someone in this room this morning who you have never embraced Jesus as your Savior. Maybe you've never had that moment of being born again, of, of having the Spirit of God make you alive and, and give you faith that this is all true. You've never had that moment where your heart was strangely warmed, as John Wesley said. Maybe that's happened to you this morning. 
And yet this message has equal application for those of us who have been Christians for many years. Because there are many Christians who live their lives in condemnation. Many Christians live their lives thinking, I can never quite be good enough. God is always displeased with me. He's always angry with me. I I stumbled yesterday. I said a a foul word. I had an impure thought. and I just can never seem to get over my sin. And God is always displeased with me. How many Christians live their lives like that? In constant condemnation. Let me tell you this morning, my friends, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because you have already been You are innocent in His sight. Let that sink down into your ears. You are clean in His sight. I mean, could it be this good? That's why the next question, as he gets out of Romans chapters uh, 4, 5, and 6, the justification section, as he gets into the sanctification section of the letter... He asks the question, well, shall we sin that grace may abound? The only reason to ask that question is if the news is this good. Because that's the natural question. I mean, if we are just declared righteousness by someone else's righteousness, an alien righteousness, then it doesn't matter what we do, good or bad. Then should we just keep sinning then? And then Paul has an, has an answer for that question. But let Let's just get the first step that he, that he takes clear in our minds. You are clean if you believe in the resurrection. Already. That's why Jesus said these famous words. Most assuredly I say to you. He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me. Has present tense everlasting life. And shall not come into judgment. There it is. But has passed from death into life. If you believe in Jesus, you won't even come into the judgment that I've been talking about today. It will not, you will not even have a part to play in it. You've already passed from death into life. Now there will be another judgment of believers with rewards. and Yes, that's not what we're talking about. That's not a, that's not a judgment of fear. Wrath has passed. We, have, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's wonderful news. Let me close by inviting anyone here this morning who perhaps has never been born again. You've never understood the free gift of righteousness that can be received by simply putting your faith in the risen Son of God, Jesus Christ. And I want to implore you this morning, as if Jesus Christ himself was speaking to you, come to him. Repent of your sins. Call on the name of Jesus for forgiveness and you will be saved. Let me close in prayer and then I will hand back over to you, Tony. Well, Heavenly Father, what can we say in the light of so great a salvation? Lord, what can we say about this great gift of righteousness that you just give to people who believe? We're grateful, Jesus. We're grateful, Jesus. We, we thank you that, that you took all of the punishment that we should have taken and you lived the perfect sinless life that we haven't lived. And all of that is given to us as a gift. We thank you, Jesus. 
thank you, Jesus. We thank you, God, for giving your son for this purpose. I pray for those here, Lord, that there would be the moving of the Holy Spirit in regeneration of your elect who are here this morning. And for the many saints here this morning, I pray that this word would once again encourage hearts that we can approach your throne with boldness, Lord. Because we are already clean because of the word that you have spoken to us. We love you, Lord. And we worship you this morning through Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen.